welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing fantastic today, Tim. We have a wonderful guest on. We're continuing the streak of really remarkable, talented, true crime writers. And the upcoming guest is like the cream of the crop. But Tim, how are you today? I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. And yes, I'm really excited to speak with Casey Sherman again. He is a local author, has written some amazing books. Some of them have been made into movies. So yeah, you're right when you say he is a big deal. And this book is called Helltown, the untold story of a serial killer on Cape Cod. And it's about the serial killer Tony Costa. And sort of one that's been lost to time, even to us here in Massachusetts. But Casey does a great job telling this story, as he always does. And he's also great to speak with in this interview. And we know that you'll enjoy this conversation with Casey. He's so articulate and well-spoken, and he's coming from this from the right place. He really is talking about not the serial killer specifically, but he's bringing out all of his victims and just the vicious nature of the attacks and who these women were and what the community was like at that time. So let us know what you think of this episode on social media. You can find us at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. And also, Tim, if people wanted to listen to this without the commercials, plus, you know, every other episode of Crawlspace without the commercials and our other shows, where would they go? Well, listeners can now subscribe to Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and find the same product there. And we are going to break for commercial real quick, and we'll be right back with author Casey Sherman. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, author Casey Sherman. How are you today, Casey? Hey, good, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back on to talk about your uh, latest book in this really horrendous, terrifying uh, case. The story is, again, terrifying, but I'm a little mad at you because the area where this takes place is like my happy place. My girlfriend and I go there at least once a year. It's one of those wonderful places that you can spend a weekend at. And now I have to connect it to your book, which is so well written that it made me it made me upset that this there was a time in this world where this place wasn't so happy and, and there was these like dark things that happened there. Sure. You know, I mean Cape Cod is still a beautiful place, so feel feel free. Enjoy the time down there with your girlfriend. But um, you know, I grew up on the Cape guys, so uh I had heard about this story that took place in 1968, 1969 as a kid growing up in the middle of uh, Cape Cod in Hyannis. And when I was a, a child, you know, going out for trick or treat on Halloween, you know, everybody uh, would whisper, um, you know, be uh, aware of Tony Chop Chop, which was the uh, uh, moniker given to the serial killer in this case. So this case was really Cape Cod folklore. For me growing up, and I, and I didn't, uh, you know, rack focus on it. I didn't really take it seriously until the middle of the pandemic when um, my brother uh, uh, gave me a call. He said, look, uh, you know, pick me up on the Cape. Let's just take a ride together. And we drove from village to village, reminiscing about our childhoods. And then we end up on Commercial Street in Provincetown. 
and all of the storefronts were shuttered during the height of the pandemic. So we began to talk about the ghosts, real and imagined, in Provincetown, and we landed on uh, the Tony Costa serial murder case from that time period uh, because a lot of the different uh, storefronts and in buildings that are really um, important to this investigation are still freestanding in Provincetown. And I remember after that day, I went back to my writing office here and I took a look at it for the first time. And I was shocked at how barbaric and destructive this case truly was. And I'm not really mad at you. That was a joke. I would never- I understand. (laughs) <laughs> uh, shocked, barbaric, good words to use right there. It really is. Yeah, uh, you know, as an investigative journalist, I've covered, you know, 50 to 75 homicides, including Jack the Ripper. And uh, quite frankly, I've never seen anything as brutal as what happened in Provincetown and Truro in 1969. And, uh, you know, going through the documentation on this case, I had access to thousands of Uh, court transcripts, um, investigative reports, and, you know, really most important to me were the crime scene photos and the autopsy photos. And that's when this story really hit home. And I realized that it was probably darker than anything I've ever, ever written about, you know, before or since. Is that because of the brutality of the uh, crime scene photos? That was because of the brutality of the crime scene photos. And uh, with Helltown guys, I wanted to give you know, the victims here, all young women agency. I wanted to give them a voice. Uh, um, and, you know, it's really a cautionary tale of uh, about trust and comfort with, with people. You know, Tony Costa, the serial killer at the heart of Helltown, you know, he's the real life version of, um, you know, uh, Norman Bates from Psycho. You know, an amateur taxidermist who uh, uh, obviously was murdering these young women, burying them in, in shallow graves. But he also had a, a bit of Charles Manson to him as well, where he was incredibly charismatic. He had, uh, you know, a lot of women and men uh, surrounding him in Provincetown because he was this hippie like messiah to a lot of people down there. Um, and my way into the story, as you guys know, having read it, is not necessarily the murder case itself, but two journalists and writers um, who are, you know, trying to gain access to the killer and gain access to the story. And those writers were uh, Norman Mailer and Kurt Vonnegut. Right, which is such a wonderful surprise when you have those parallel stories happening, which is something that I think both Tim and I love about uh, reading a good true crime book is when there's something happening uh, concurrently with the actual crime that interested you in the first place. So, you know, just knowing the cape and knowing that this happened with uh, Costa, I had no idea until I read your book that Vonnegut and Mailer had a hand in like the coverage and, and, you know, had a voice in this. Uh, How, how was that for you when you came, like you just saw the depth in which they went? Yeah, you know, to me, it was really, uh, you know, going down that writer's journey, that journey into the heart of, of darkness. And I look at, you know, Kurt and Norman, you know, in 1969, they were basically polar opposites of the, in their writing careers. Norman Mailer was a, um, a New York Times bestselling author since his first book, The Naked and the Dead, in the 1940s. So he was a, a larger-than-life character at the time, really taking the mantle from uh, Hemingway after Hemingway uh, committed suicide back in the early 1960s. Um, He's got celebrity. He's got wealth. Kurt Vonnegut has none of that. 
Kurt Vonnegut is a struggling car salesman um, working and living in Barnstable. He's got a story in his head that it would ultimately be the epic Slaughterhouse-Five, but he's not there yet. Um, and one of his daughters, one of his children, Edie, is uh, a part of this hippie culture in Provincetown. So he you know, starts to focus on this case really because he's a, he's a concerned parent. And then he's going to put, you know, his former uh, journalistic skills, because Kurt had been a cub uh, crime reporter in Chicago um, back in his early days. He had to put those to work to see if he could get, uh, you know, get the story. So following their trajectory, you know, around this case and, and their journeys while also, um, you know, following in the footsteps of Tony Costa uh, was a, a unique challenge for me as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, if you can, uh, tell us a little bit about Costa, about his um, upbringing. Sure. Costa was um, the uh, you know son of a, of a broken home. His, his, his mother was uh, basically a single mom growing, you know, while raising him. His father died during World War II. And I think, you know, he had this real unique, bizarre relationship with his mother. It was a love-hate relationship that I think manifested itself later on when he started to target women, because I do think he had, you know, almost a romantic idea of, of motherhood and what his mother could be. And when his mother uh, remarried and took all her love away from him to spread it to her husband and Tony's stepbrother uh, or half-brother rather, um, you know, he got angry and he got violent and, um, you know, his journey is incredibly twisted and bizarre. And one of the things I think, you know, readers will take from Helltown is, you know, I'm not just kind of creating, um, a character in Tony Costa. Costa, uh, uh, you know, likened himself as a writer, much like Norman Mailer and, and Kurt Vonnegut. So, you know, after the crimes, Costa wrote, um, a manuscript called Resurrection. It was an unpublished manuscript that he wrote in prison, where for the first time I can actually take the reader into these crime scenes. And I do so, you know, through Costa and Costa's alter ego. Costa never, uh, you know, um, took responsibility for these murders. Instead, he placed it on uh, a demon that was growing inside him, somebody that he called Corey Devereaux. Um, and that is, uh, you know, the di clinical diagnosis there is ego splitting. And that's what the, um, you know, psychiatrist realized was going on in, uh, in this man's very sick brain. Yeah, you made the comparison to Norman Bates, and it's kind of remarkable how similar it is with the mother dependency and the ego splitting. Taxidermy taxidermy i mean is this like was he influenced by this i don't think he was influenced by by hitchcock but there are a lot of you know real parallels um to their stories i don't think costa um you know tried to uh you know create a character based on uh norman bates or psycho i think he was already living it at the time it's just a really eerie and odd coincidence um that costa was the living embodiment of you know, uh, uh, what was at that time a fictional character. And we've made some references to the culture that was going on at the time in Provincetown. Can you take us back there and just open that up a little bit? What was the area like at the time? And when did these victims start being connected? Sure. And that's a great question, Lance, because, you know, going over the case so many decades later, I was I was really startled 
um, that, you know, when the women, young women began to disappear, nobody really cared um, because it was, you know, Provincetown was a transient culture at the time. It was a, a hippie enclave, much like Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco or uh, Greenwich Village. You know, young people came and went. Um, their own families didn't really raise concern when they went missing. The police certainly didn't care. You know, there were, you know, upwards to 400 missing young women in New England uh, from 1968 to 1969. And, you know, the, the idea behind it was, at least from a law enforcement perspective, these are kids. They're on a caravan somewhere. They're traveling the country. They want to be free. So let's let them be free. So there was a period of time where young women were missing and being murdered in the most brutal ways possible, and nobody really knew about it. And here is Tony Costa hiding in plain sight. And who who were Costa's victims? And I guess what, what did that uh, tell us about Costa? Well, uh, you know, Costa's first victim was a young 19-year-old East Ham girl named um, Sydney Monson. And she was living in Provincetown at the time. Uh, she was very friendly with Tony Costa, as were all of these young women. He was, um, you know, uh, uh, very comforter, com- comforting, excuse me, very smart, very intelligent. Um, there was really no fear that these women would have had around him. And he took that uh, comfort level um, into his own hands, brought them to places, dark places like uh, the woods of Truro, and he would um, stab them, shoot them, dismember their bodies and bury them in shallow graves. So Sydney goes missing in um, the spring or early summer of 1968, followed by a young woman named Susan Perry, another Provincetown girl who, you know, falls into um, Tony Costa's web. She goes missing later that fall. And it isn't until two uh, young educators from Providence, Rhode Island, um, go on a midwinter break to Provincetown in January 1969 that this case blows up. Marianne Wysocki and Patricia Walsh, those were their names. And these uh, young women, one was a teacher, one was in college studying to be a teacher. And this was, you know, when I wrote um, Helltown Guys, what I was really trying to, uh, to paint a picture of was this canvas in this large landscape in which these murders take place. Um, you know, 1968, 1969 reminds me a bit of what we're going through today as a culture. You know, in 1968, you had the assassinations of Robert F. Kennedy, of Martin Luther King. You know, the summer of love is a distant memory. You've got the bloody... Um, Uh, protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And you've got the Nixon Nixon inauguration. And these young women were, um, you know, watching all of this unfold, as do all the characters in my book. And they just wanted to break away. They wanted to get away as far away, at least for the weekend, as they could. And they decided to take their uh, VW Beetle on on a journey to Provincetown, off season where they could quietly reconnect with each other and and meet some like-minded people. And they enter a boarding house where Anton Tony Costa has to be, you know, just happens to be living at the time. And he brings them in. He's charming. He's 
offering them tips on where to go and what to see in Provincetown. Their defenses are dropped, and Tony starts to watch them, much like a hunter would watch their prey. Um, and Tony was, uh, you know, we mentioned the fact that he was a, an amateur taxidermist, and he learned, you know, the methods and techniques of taxidermy as well as, as hunting. And that's what he did with these women. As we talk about his amateur taxidermy hobby, I'm wondering if that occupation should be maybe a red flag with some people. I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> and I don't mean it to be right, a joke. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, there. if you walk into any lodge, you know, in America or, or Europe, you're going to see those big stuffed heads on the wall. Now, you know, that's not my thing. I'm not a hunter, but I understand that people you know, do enjoy that, that pastime, um, with their families. And, you know, a lot of them want, you know, trophies of, of, of their hunts. I'm a, I'm a big Hemingway guy. So, you know, anytime you walk into the Hemingway house in Key West or in Cuba or anywhere else, you're going to see a lot of the, a lot of his kills. Uh, I think it, you know, I think Tony Costa co-opted, you know, that, uh, that occupation or that activity, and used it, uh, you know, in a sick and twisted and, you know, macabre way. And I certainly don't want to offend any professional or amateur taxidermist out there. Uh, it's just a question that was sort of rattling around in my head, but uh, well, well uh, answered. Yeah. And, you know, Costa had, again, he had a manual, he had a book and it's a book that he, that he studied uh, much like you would, you know, study anything else. And he learned over time when he was a young man, you know, living not on Cape Cod, but um, in Somerville, Massachusetts, he started to, you know, after his mother had remarried, he took out his anger and his frustration out on neighborhood pets. So, you know, people were missing their poodles or <laughs> their cats, and they were all being stuffed. And, uh, you know, uh, Tony created a menagerie of, of animals that he kept under his bed you know, from 11 to 16. And when he was 16 years old, he elevated and graduated to assaulting a young girl. He should have uh, gotten the help that he needed at that time. But his mother stepped in and said, uh, told the judge, pleaded with the judge, if you let him go, I will take him away from Somerville, someplace safe where he can start his life again and I'll watch him. Well, she took him to Provincetown and, um, and she didn't watch him. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, a monster evolved and was created. Gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Like as a parent, I don't know what I would do about that, but that is such like a, a glaring red flag. Uh, at least in my head today, I don't know, uh, what should have been done, um, about that, but, uh, I just can't imagine, you know, sort of letting him off the hook. I, I have to imagine that sort of led him to feel invincible or, or something later in his life. That's right. And, you know, I think the people um, around him, they saw the red flags, especially his mother, Cecilia. And uh, instead of uh, getting him help or, or bringing him to the authorities, you know, she did everything that she could to protect him while, you know, more young women went missing and were killed. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. We always hear about the most famous handful of serial killers and Costa really doesn't fall into that conversation very often. Why is it that he's 
almost become until reading Helltown almost become an unknown serial killer. Yeah, I mean, he really was an unknown unknown serial killer before uh, you know Helltown was published. But a lot of that has to do with um, the year in which it happened, 1969. So uh, these murders, or at least the murders of the uh, two women from Providence, Rhode Island, are investigated in January, February 1969. Costa is later captured, thank God. Um, but um, several months later, Charles Manson, starts to, you know, order the murders of wealthy and famous people in Southern California. And it really kind of takes all the oxygen out of the room and, uh, and takes all the focus from journalists. So Costa goes back into the, into the background and, and darkness while Manson is elevated as this iconic criminal figure. And Costa knew about that and he talked about that. And, uh, you know, he was very frustrated that, you know, somebody else was taking his headlines and, and the attention um, from what he was doing on Cape Cod. And it's interesting, you know, uh, there are a lot of similarities, as I mentioned, between Manson and Costa. And what I didn't, you know, learn until after the book was published, uh, sat down with one of Tony Costa's, let's call it family members. So like Manson had his family members, Costa, again, had his disciples. And this woman who's, um, you know, um, in her 60s or, or, or late 60s now, very pleasant woman, uh, said that um, Costa and Charles Manson knew each other because uh, this woman had a, a, an apartment on McAllister Street in San Francisco in 1967. And that's where Costa lived with her and Manson lived down the street. So they would attend social gatherings together, get high together have parties together. And I don't think there was, um, you know, probably any talk about, you know, what their murderous lives would look like. But the fact that two, you know, serial killer figures were sharing the same air and oxygen is really unique. Yeah, that is wild and just disturbing um, to think of. So can, can you take us through how uh, Costa got caught? Well, you know, Costa wasn't a very bright criminal. You know, he thought he was smarter. Than, than the police detectives. And, uh, and one of the police detectives, a state trooper from Massachusetts named Tom Gunnery, you know, I spent a lot of time with him uh, working on the book, researching the book, getting his perspective on it. And um, there was a cat and mouse game that went on for several weeks between Costa and the investigators. Once they, once they leaned on him a little bit because of the connections that Costa had with the boarding house where the two women went missing with um, Susan Perry and Cindy Monson. They were friends of his. So the investigators start to focus on him very quickly, but they did not have the evidence uh, to bring him in. So there is a, a lot of back and forth between Costa and the cops that is very revealing in the book until um, these investigators, you know, stumble on these, these murder scenes. You know, these women were buried in shallow graves in Truro. And it was it was horrific because Costa was dismembering them and stacking them like cords of wood. So when one body is recovered, then the others start to get recovered. There was actually a hole where Costa had put the remains of two of his victims. And still police didn't have enough evidence to tie him to the case until they found um, the murder weapons. And at that point, they brought Costa in. 
And um, that creates a very, you know, sensational um, political story here in, in Massachusetts. The district attorney at the time, Ed Denise, was just coming off of Chappaquiddick, where he'd been criticized for not bringing Ted Kennedy to justice. And there's a, a chapter in the book that is dedicated to Chappaquiddick. That was going to be a, a couple of paragraphs, but I was really startled when I looked at all of the grand jury testimony at um, you know how Senator Kennedy really got away with manslaughter in this case. And what that tells me is that you know young women were disposable in 1968 and 1969. Nobody really cared. They didn't have um, advocates fighting for them, you know, fighting for them against a rich, wealthy, you know, uh, political uh, scion like Ted Kennedy or uh, a young, charismatic, murderous Tony Costa. I'm really glad that you brought up the chapter about uh, Mary Jo Kopechny and, and Ted Kennedy because it unfolds as like the way you read it. And I'm glad you said you only expected it to be a certain length and then it turned into a chapter because when it's introduced into the story, that's how you feel as a reader, that it it starts to unfold in an unexpected way. And you get a bit of history there that you don't typically get when you hear about this story, which is surprisingly refreshing for such a tragic occurrence. You know what I mean? It's It's refreshing to get that honesty in there. And I'm just wondering if that was intimidating or daunting to you to, to write about you know, that the, the Kennedys and, and put these truths out there. Yeah, I mean, it was I wasn't intimidated by it. I was I was angry. I was angry that, you know, growing up on Cape Cod and Irish Catholic household, you know, obviously, you know, my family adored, you know, the Kennedys as as, as so many others did. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people overlooked um, Chappaquiddick. Certainly they did. Uh, and, you know, and Kennedy got away with. Uh, you know, again, at least manslaughter because Mary Jo Kopechny, you know, remained alive. Um, she didn't drown. She was she died from asphyxiation. So she was alive in that Oldsmobile for, you know, several hours while Kennedy was making his grand escape to Edgartown after uh, uh, the accident on the bridge at Chappaquiddick. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. That's that's an angering story for sure. Yeah. And again, folding it back to you know, the young women in Provincetown, which is what I, you know, attempted, I attempted to do. And again, you know, realizing that these women were so disposable and nobody really cared. And it just, it breaks your heart, you know, having to write it and then readers reading about it, you know, several decades later. And have you had communication with any of the victims' families or friends of the victims? Not friends of the victims. Well, I have actually. For, uh, uh, Christine Gallant is another... Um, a uh, woman that was, uh, you know, allegedly murdered by Tony Costa, not in Provincetown, but in New York City, uh, a, a girlfriend uh, of Costa's that uh, uh, her, her death was at least initially looked at as an accidental overdose. Um, but the medical examiner, uh, you know, saw bite marks on her, um, you know, Costa, you know, in, in the way I unfold it, um, murdered her. Um, and I, and I do believe that that's the case today. And, you know, so Christ, one of Christine's friends has uh, reached out and, uh, told me a little bit more about, about her, her story, um, with regard to, um, you know, Costa's family and, and friends. It's interesting that, uh, you know, some people that are close to Costa or were close to him in 1969 still defend this monster decades later. 
Yeah, that's that's a very confusing part. Um, what, what is it about him that uh, that drew people to him? I think he, you know, his intelligence. He was a good-looking guy. He was well-read. He was he was charming. Um, you know, they they had a nickname for him. Uh, he was called the Casanova Killer um, in the 1970s because he was able to you know break down break down the defenses of these young women, uh, get them to trust him, and um, um, and then murder them. And then again, you know, why people still defend him or at least, you know, have feelings for him today, it's beyond the pale because, you know, I've seen the autopsy photos and the, in the crime scene photos, you know, I couldn't put those in the book and I wouldn't put those in the book because they are so horrendous. This, I haven't seen anything this brutal since Jack the Ripper. You write a lot about crime and disturbing moments in crime including the poster behind you hunting Whitey about Whitey Bulger, who was also very brutal. You were talking about the autopsy photos and and the condition of the body and bite marks. And in your opinion, with the work that you've done, what, what does it take? What is it that drives somebody to be that vicious to another human being? I, I think, you know, Tony Costa hated women. You know, and I think it all went back to his his love hate relationship with his mother. Once he felt like he had not gotten her full attention or a hundred percent of of her love, something in him snapped. Um, and clearly, it, it's shown with the way that he looked at these women not as human beings, but as as you know, almost pieces of wood that he could cut up and stack without any feeling and. Uh, you know, there is obviously some really other you know disturbing moments in the um, in the book as well uh, that touch on necrophilia. Um, you know, Costa trying to dominate these women before and after death. Um, it's uh, it's a really you know disturbing psychological journey that uh, you know Costa had, and I think he had to detach himself from the brutality by creating this alter ego. Um, you know, Costa didn't look at himself as uh, this monster. He looked at himself as a, a what he called, a, you know, a, a, a free thinker in the age of Aquarius. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess tell us a little bit more about his uh, alter ego, if you can. Um, some, sometimes that kind of thing from, from a killer makes me think they're just full of shit. Um, but, uh, in, in Costa's case, do you think this was real? He just, he actually psychologically detached and, and didn't see himself as the killer. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Tim, <laughs> in terms of you have to figure out, okay, is this a smoke screen? Is this, uh, just a, a shield that Costa is putting up? Um, but I do think there were elements of detachment, you know, reading his manuscript. That's really where I kind of got into Costa's brain a little bit. And I could see the detachment. You know, the the alter ego, Corey Devereaux, he was a real kid. He was a you know minor drug dealer in Provincetown at the time. Uh, somebody that Costa um, competed against in the drug market because, you know, Costa was a, a low-level drug dealer. And that's, you know, a lot of the ways and reasons why young people gravitated toward him because, you know, he had product and he had the stash and he had pills and um, and, uh, you know, that's the, he was the Pied Piper for a lot of these kids. And your, uh, dialogue in this book is extraordinary. It stands out as being very genuine. You can hear them speaking 
and if you're familiar with the area, you can hear like the, their inflections and their accents in your dialogue. And it's so specific. Uh, what was your research like when going into that? How did you get such uh, specificity? Sure. Well, you know, with Tony Costa, uh, I mean, I had access to 12 hours of audio taped interviews. Um, so I, I could get his inflection. I could hear how he answered questions from his attorneys. Uh, same thing with, um, you know, Norman and uh, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, going back to all of their uh, interviews that they've done over, you know, the course of, you know, 30 years and understanding their mindset and reading everything about Vonnegut and Mailer that I could get my hands on. A lot of biographies, a lot, of, obviously all of their their collective works and understanding the, the fine line that both of them had because, you know, Vonnegut is at a place in his life where he is finally confronting the horrors of World War II. He was a um, prisoner of war in Dresden. That story uh, became fictionalized in Slaughterhouse-Five, but he never certainly shared any of that with his family or friends or his wife prior to that. It had to come out on the page, and he thought he had left that darkness behind in Germany, uh, and then young women start to get murdered in his backyard. And I think, you know, Mailer is, is opposite. Mailer always touched the burning candle. He always looked at the darkness within himself and was embracing that in many ways. What readers don't understand and what I, you know, write about Mailer in the book is, you know, here's a guy that probably shouldn't have been um, outside of a prison in 1969 because Norman Mailer stabbed his second wife, Adele, nearly to death in the early 1960s, and he was never um, formally charged or prosecuted for it because she wouldn't testify against him. So here's a, you know, Norman was a brilliant, brilliant guy, but there's a lot of darkness to him, and I think that's what drew him to Tony Costa. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. You mentioned uh, Costa's disciples. Um, now, I understand the, that you canceled an event was that because of his i guess disciples who were still around yeah i never canceled uh, the event um you know i certainly wouldn't tow uh, right. or cower to to any outside um you know pressure or influences but a bookseller in um provincetown uh last year you know felt uh, pressured and had to cancel an event because people um, you know, that claimed to be friends of Tony Costa had threatened the bookseller. They were going to break windows in his bookshop if, um, you know, he sold Helltown. You know, Helltown was the biggest selling crime story in Provincetown and all over New England last summer. So I felt bad for the for the bookseller because he was losing, you know, profits and, uh, and, and book sales. So one day last summer, uh, he reached out to me and he had, you know, despite the protests, he had purchased and I think five boxes of Helltown hardcovers. And my brother and I went to Provincetown that day and we signed it. Um, as I said, I wasn't going to, you know, cower uh, to the mob, you know, this online mob that, that took a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, terror tactics against um, this poor bookseller. But as I said, it goes back to why would people want to defend, you know, this monster um, uh, 40 years after the crime? It really shocks me. I, I guess like one natural question that comes up when you're speaking about the de the people who defend him, who who else have they 
caught. Like, who else were they looking at? Who who else would have been responsible for these crimes? You know, like that's that's actually a really good question, Lance. I think that you know, looking at the way that these murders unfolded and how Costa killed these women and, and was able to get away, you know, um, I don't think he acted alone. I think he had help, much like, you know, Manson was directing the scenes and, you know, he wasn't really an active participant. I think Costa did the killing, but I think in terms of burying the bodies and um, and covering in his tracks, at least initially, he had to have had help. And I do think that there are people still around today that are concerned about that. Like there are other accomplices that are still active? I would say that there are people out there that probably helped him uh, back in 1968, 1969. And, uh, you know, they don't want to be confronted with that dark history because there is no statute of limitation on murder. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. Um, Jeez, could that ever be proven? Or is that something like uh, that has any chance of of coming back uh, to them? I don't don't think so. Uh, I don't think that the, you know... um, Police have uh, uh, certainly, you know, enough time and resources to to focus on something like this. Right, but there are other unsolved cases too that could potentially lead sure. to someone. Well, yeah, there are unsolved cases not only on the, you know, on Cape Cod, uh, you know, New York City, San Francisco. Another woman, uh, you know, went missing um, uh, out there that has all the earmarks of a Tony Costa murder, but. You know, that's for the cold case squads to uh, track down. But, you know, a lot of times that, you know, it, it's difficult enough to solve a murder that happened, you know, uh, 72 hours ago. You know, now you've got to go back over 50 years. And I don't think that there's an appetite to do it. But, you know, that's why, you know, a lot of the information that I reveal in the book, you know, we can, you know, have a, a, a court of public opinion now. And. The book raises the awareness for these crimes and for the victims. And I think the next natural question is, is there any adaptation that's going to be taken from this? Yeah. So, we're, you know, I'm very lucky when I when I had the idea for the book, um, you know, you write a book treatment for your literary agent and then um, you share that with your Hollywood agent. So uh, when I wrote the book treatment, it was about a 70 page treatment. I sent that to my managers out at Gotham Group in um, uh, Hollywood, and it became a feeding frenzy. Everybody wanted it. Um, so I was going uh, you know, through Zoom calls with some of the top people in Hollywood. And uh, finally, I land on a call with uh, um, Robert and Susan Downey from Team Downey. And uh, they had just such an amazing take on the story that was very you know, similar to what I was doing. And I decided to partner with Team Downey right there. Team Downey, if you don't know, they also produce uh, Perry Mason for HBO. Um, And I created a partnership with the Downeys and their team. And over the course of writing the book, I would send them pages as I would be sending pages to my literary agent. And we had to put a team together to take this out to market. So, um, you know, they leaned in on um, a protagonist, not necessarily Tony Costa, but Kurt Vonnegut. And we were able to get uh, Oscar Isaac to commit to wow. playing Kurt Vonnegut in the limited series, which is amazing. And he's, you know, uh, an incredible talent. Equal to that, uh, we uh, got a director, um, a, a German director who 
was working or finalizing All Quiet on the Western Front when we engaged with him, Edward Berger, and has since won four Oscars. So he is directing our project. And we've got a great showrunner uh, who worked on um, Severance for uh, Apple TV. And we have a commitment from Amazon Studio to make this limited series. So we're really excited to move into that realm uh, once the WGA strike uh, resolves itself, knock on wood. Wow, that's a really exciting project. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Well done. Yeah, it's an embarrassment of talent that you surround yourself with on a a project like this. And uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And, you know, having someone like Oscar Isaac uh, with that star power that he has in that prominent role will draw people to it. And then they'll learn about the things that you want them to learn about, which is how those women were treated back then. And through his performance, that'll come through, you know. Uh, So just a round of applause for you on, on, on securing all of that, because you don't want the story to get lost. So do whatever you have to do to make sure that people watch and, and read and actually comprehend what you're trying to tell. And you got to do that through talented people. Yeah, you do. And, it, you know, I mean, you provide the introduction to the story and uh, let the readers or the viewers kind of go from there. Um, you know, they'll go back and they'll research or take a look at um, either my book or do their own research on Tony Costa. They'll also hopefully go back and look at the careers of Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer. And that's been one of the, you know, the byproducts of the, the success of Helltown. You know, there are a lot of readers out there that don't know who these guys were. So, uh, and I've had people come up to me at, at signings or events that, you know, they have their, uh, their softback copy of Slaughterhouse-Five or Tough Guys Don't Dance from Norman Mailer. And it's great because, you know, you provide that introduction to other writers and, uh, you know, allow people to explore from there. And um, what uh, what other books uh, have you been working on? Yeah, so I've got a book uh, coming out um, early next year called Murder in Hollywood. Now, you know, I've always been a big fan of Chinatown, big fan of L.A. Confidential. So, um, you know, I talked with my literary agent and I said, I'd like to focus on something, you know, outside of New England. And um, we landed on the um, sensational murder of uh, Johnny Stampanato in 1958 in Hollywood, uh, allegedly at the hands of uh, Lana Turner's 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl Crane. Uh, This was a sensational murder in 1958, sent shockwaves not only through Hollywood, but across the world. And I started to take a close look at this case. And it's a much bigger, more sophisticated story than has ever been out there before. Lana Turner, who was really Marilyn Monroe before Marilyn, you know, she's been called a femme fatale and almost looked at like as a villain in Hollywood history. But I've determined and learned that she's a feminist icon. She's a pioneer to the Me Too movement that we see today. Here's a woman that was brutalized by the Hollywood system and then was brutalized by the uh, you know, most terrifying mobsters in Hollywood, led by Mickey Cohen. And how she turns the tables on everybody is really um, uh, awe-inspiring. So I can't wait for everybody to read that book. How did you discover this story? Uh, you know, I, I've always known about it. and um, But, you know, talking to my agent and finding out, okay, well, you know, again, I have to go back to my, you know, research lab and see if there's a story to be told there. And once I started to go down that path and look at, 
you know, the uh, the inquest from 1958, all of the uh, subsequent, you know, articles, all the FBI um, case files, you know, from those times, I was able to, you know, really um, uncover a, a much bigger story and, you know, a story that is so relevant even to this day. When that's ready, let us know. I will. Definitely. Great. Well, thank you very much, Casey, for uh, spending some time with us here today. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it, guys. Always a pleasure. Lance and Tim, this is a great show. Keep up the good work and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon.